This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women. Welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. And I'm Alicia. And this is our podcast. <laughs> I, I don't know what I'm saying. It's why? It's weird. Why it's is that weird? a question Look, for you? It's To be honest, full disclosure, everybody, this is the first time that we've ever recorded while not being in the same room. Yeah, that's true. It is. It is. And it's very weird to not be able to look at you for visual cues. Well, we've turned off the uh, the video in hopes that it will help the audio. So we've got zero visual clues to go off of. Yeah. So it is indeed a challenge. But this is just kind of indicative of the world we live in at the moment, I feel like. <laughs> the reason we're not in the same room is because... We live in a fucking strange world right now. It's the weirdest. Where we are both socially distancing. It's so and weird. Things are f- really fucking weird and scary. And again, another second disclosure is that I've had two meltdowns in the last <laughs> two days and I <sighs> entirely coronavirus related. I, I think coronavirus is, is not a good time to start a new job as a Teaching specialist academic. No, no, it's very poor timing. It's really bad. There's that. And my brother just had to postpone his wedding today. It was supposed to, he was supposed to get married on Saturday. Yep. And that's not happening. Yeah. And the, the world's gone mad. You can't, the, the shops are empty. The streets are empty. It feels like the zombie apocalypse is upon us. Mm. And we are recording from our houses that are distanced by several train stops and (laughs) kilometres. It's true. It's true. We are in lockdown. And yes, I do feel like particularly weddings are the thing that's been hard hit for us at the moment because it's still (laughs) wedding season here because it's still the weather. It's still the weather for the time of year. March is technically autumn, but in Australia, it's basically late summer. Yeah. So as you said, your brother's wedding's been cancelled for this weekend. My my friend Beck and well, Amy, they postponed. Well, yeah, cancelled is a bit harsh, isn't it? Yeah, that yeah. makes it sound like they're <laughs> never going to do it. But um, yeah, my friends Beck and Amy have postponed their wedding as well. So it's kind of wedding season has taken a downturn. There's so many worse things that are happening to people right now. That is There's true. People who are losing jobs. There are people who have loved ones who are very sick. Absolutely. But it's just sort of yep. for me, it was just the icing on the cake, but like the opposite negative version of that. It was just like I was already in total fucking meltdown mode as I tried to start this new teaching life by, by being thrust into, oh, not only do you have to teach these new topics that you don't know, but you also have to learn this whole new online stuff and transition your old job from being in person to online at the same time. So for ready for the new people to take over. So there's like, and dealing with the fact that when I was at work, we were like sitting, you know, a meter and a half away from each other and like making sure that nobody's touching each other. And there's a triage center set up out the front of my building. And like, it's just like, fuck man, it's 
insane and real and my anxiety levels have gone to 100 in a very short period of time. And it's just the wedding stuff is just the thing that cracked me, really. Well, you know, yeah, absolutely. And the only reason why I um, was harping on the weddings was not because, definitely not because weddings are the worst hit things at the moment. <laughs> you were a hundred percent right. There are there are much worse things going on in the world than people having to postpone their weddings. But the reason I'm, I mentioned the weddings, or I'm so interested in that, is because it also leads us into some happy news that we have to share with our listeners as well. And I think if there's it is true. any time for some happy news needed, then there's some happy mm. news needed now. So, Lauren, do you have some happy news? Uh, I guess so. Uh, <laughs> yes. So myself and Brendo, the sound guy... Yeah. of this podcast. Well, Brendo, the sound guy, he proposed to me in the Temple of the Condor at Machu Picchu. Woo! So uh, we're engaged. Yay! And he proposed to me after four days of really difficult but highly worthwhile trekking in this beautiful, amazing place, which was on my bucket list for forever. And it was lovely and wonderful. And it was an excellent way to be proposed to, I have to say. Yeah. That's so, yes. Beautiful. So there is some happiness. I thought that since we were talking about it, you may as well just drop in a bit of happy news for everyone out there <laughs> in the world to know that, yes, there are still good things, good, wonderful things in the world. And um, I wish you and Brendo the Sound Guy many years of happiness <laughs> together. And I hope we Thank will you. always refer to him as Brendo the Sound Guy rather than yeah. say like your husband or anything else. Ever. Or, yeah, partner, fiancé, whatever. Yeah, he's, as far as this podcast is concerned, he is Brendo the sound guy, but he is more than that to me. <laughs> he's, more, he's more than just the sound guy to yeah. Lauren. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Wonderful. In other happy news, I have a pretty rollicking, riveting, fabulous story today. I'm hoping it's a good fun time. There's not too much trauma involved. And I hope that it's the type of story. And no plagues? Are there any plagues at the period in history that you're going to? Mm, Probably. Maybe. Not directly. <laughs> Look, there is a, a major catastrophic event Ooh. that did affect our subject's life as it did millions and millions of other people around the world, but that's only because we're in the early 20th century and there was a world war that ah. happened. But most of our time is going to be spent in Belle Epoque, Paris, oh, which I feel... Fabulous! Exactly. I mean, in terms of escapism, in terms of feeling wonderful and envisioning, like, the kind of fantasy life that you wish you could have and you feel kind of a little bit weird about fantasizing about because you know it probably wasn't as good as your fantasies make it out to be but then also maybe it was that's where we're going excellent i cannot wait take us there okay well today we are talking about a woman who is known as the most notorious courtesan of paris Ooh. Which is quite a title. She was so many, also, again a title. Everyone's got titles so far this everyone season. Everyone does have titles. I hadn't really thought about this until we did Bessie Smith last week, but you're totally right. Everyone has a title. She had a second title and it was Our National Courtesan. Oh courtesan. <laughs> what a title. The National Courtesan. So she was a big deal, but also like courtesans generally at this period in Paris were a pretty big deal, but we're going to get to that. 
in due course. Excellent. So, Lauren, tell me, who is this figure that we are speaking of? Who is this courtesan? The most notorious courtesan. She is Leanne de Pougy. That's actually not her birth name. She was born on July the 2nd, 1869 in La Fleche, South I'm going to try with the French. Give it a shot. Forgive me. But it's in the west of France, sort of between Nantes and Paris. Uh, Paris. I'm sorry for being a bit wanky. (laughs) Paris, for those of you who don't know what I mean by (laughs) Paris, just in case. And her name was originally Anne-Marie Chassain. And she was born to Pierre Blaise Eugène Chassain and his wife, Amy Lopez. So later in life, she's... Well, we know so much about her life because she published these memoirs called My Blue Notebooks and they were a journal. Blue Notebooks. Oh, my goodness. Have you heard of them or are you just sort of assuming what that means? I'm just taking from the term Blue Notebooks that they'd be rather risque. Well, she's a rather risque kind of lady. But they came at a point in her life when she was returning to her Christian Catholic roots. So... They're an an interesting specimen that I'm going to talk about in a little bit. But in these diaries, because they were a journal that she wrote later in life, she wrote of this momentous day of her birth, she said, Maman was on a visit to some military friends. She was not expecting me to arrive before August 15th. Why? Simply because the Holy Virgin had appeared to her in a dream, (laughs) sitting in a beautiful white cherry tree, and told her, you will have a little daughter on my feast day. She will be called Marie. I will protect her. After an eventful life, she will end up in paradise as a great saint. Oh. Yeah. I feel like this kind of sets us up for the tone of this story, basically. That is a big call. Yes. (laughs) There's a lot in there. There's a lot of, let's be honest, kind of low-key narcissism. (laughs) Or perhaps... Low-key? Some low-key narcissism on her mother's behalf that's sort of been inherited, perhaps. A bit of a complex, maybe, of specialness. And also there's some undertones of Christianity, well, Catholicism specifically, Mm. that are sort of structuring as a foundation of her life, I guess. So, yeah. Now, she, like many young French women, was sent to a nunnery to be educated. Of course. So she spent most of her youth at convent school. She was taught manners, pretty handwriting, and she was educated in the devotion, particularly to the Saint Anne of Auray. Now, despite the nun's best efforts, she managed, like a lot of them, let's be honest, to get herself in the family way at the young (laughs) age of just 16. Oh, dear. Oh, that convent was... mm. (laughs) Can I say as a side note here? So we did talk a little bit about my trip to South America where I was proposed to earlier in this episode. But I also went to a nunnery in Arequipa where after an earthquake, because there's a lot of earthquakes in Peru, they discovered in the walls of the convent bodies of aborted fetuses. Oh, that does actually not surprise me in the fucking slightest. Because the nuns used to sneak off in these underground tunnels to meet up with the monks and priests. And, yeah, when they got pregnant, they just hid the evidence in the fucking walls. Oh, my God. That is so macabre. That is so macabre. And again, I feel like we're constantly trying to like debunk myths about nunneries. I feel like that's like a side project of this whole podcast. It's like nunneries and convents are not what you think they are. (laughs) Convents were fucked up, man. Yes. They were fucked up. 
up. Yes. So it's not surprising that she got pregnant, really. And she ran off with the baby daddy. I was going to say, do we know who the baby daddy was? Yeah, yeah. His name was Armand Porpe and he was a naval officer. Sounds all right. And he was a little bit older than her, but not terribly. Unfortunately, though, she didn't really take to motherhood, like, which is not surprising. She was only 16. She wished, She said that she wishes her son, who they named Mark, had been a girl so that she could dress him up in pretty clothes and curl his hair, but... He was a boy. And, I mean, she was really still just a girl, right? Like, Mm. and she said in her diaries that it was like a little girl being given a living doll. Yeah. And she was just not ready for the responsibility. And the marriage was also very unhappy. In her diaries, she wrote that on the wedding night, Armand took her violently and remained cruel and violent to her throughout their marriage. Really? Yeah. And apparently she carried the scars on her body from him for her whole life. Yeah. Oh, that took a turn because that started out sounding so like romantic and let's run away together and it definitively ended in domestic violence, which to be honest, a lot of those romantic let's run away together stories often do end that way. And I think particularly when there's a baby as well because it's suddenly just like this. We've gone from being carefree, young lovers with no responsibilities, Mm. no cares in the world to suddenly being tied together through this living human Mm. that we have to care for and be responsible for. Yeah, and do you know what you're doing? Because I don't know what I'm doing. Does anyone know what they're doing? I don't know. But, I mean, okay, so the good news is that it was a very short marriage. Like, she left him very quickly. Good news. Which is good because so many women in that situation couldn't and didn't and they stayed in these relationships. But she did. Like, So so what period of time are we in now? So this is the late 1800s because she was born in 1869. So by the time she was 16, it's the 1880s. Yeah, yeah. So very much so the easiest, I suppose, or the most done thing to do is just to stay. Yeah, but this was also the period of a lot of change. So very recently women had acquired, well, in France they had reacquired the right to divorce, Mm. the right to own property, Mm -hmm. to open a bank account in their own name, not in their husband's name. And so while... I keep forgetting we're in France. I don't know why because all those names would suggest that I should remember we're in France. All those yeah. French names. And so it is still conservative and Victorian, but it's not the same thing as being in England. And the concept of the new woman was very much sort of taking hold here. But at the same time, we have a lot of conservative Catholic values happening at the same time. And obviously Catholics don't like divorce. Mm. But at the end of the day, she did leave him, although it was spurred by a very particular incident, which is that, okay, so she's unhappy in her marriage. And she decided to take up with another man. Ah. Uh, ah. Yes. She took up with a gentleman named Charles-Marie de Marmaron. Ooh, very nice. The fifth Marquis of Aigrely. Ooh. And the marriage ended because Popé came home one night and he found the two of them in bed together. Oh. And so he shot her. <gasps> what? Yes. He shot her, wounded her in the wrist. Oh, my God. So she was not, I mean, like... That's terrible. That's awful. He fucking shot her, but it was just like a minor injury. So she was okay, which is the good news. But that's why she left. And so 
we do have this situation of very violent domestic kind of Mm. household. And so did she take Mark with her? Well, no, she didn't actually because, like I said, she didn't take to motherhood well and – I think at the time, look, to be honest, it, it would have been unusual for her to have been able to take Mark with her anyway because at the time children belonged to their fathers mm, yeah. and in the case of separation or divorce, they stayed with the fathers and so Mark went to live with his paternal grandparents. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a very selfish thing that she ran off without her son but also I think she's probably, it's a combination of that. She's 16 and doesn't know how to be a mother. Not Mm. that that's an excuse, but also that he would have ended up probably with his paternal grandparents anyway, no matter how hard she fought for him. Yeah, because as as you say, I mean, he is essentially, he's his father's property. So if he had wanted to, he would have basically hunted her down to get him back anyway. That's right. And so she sold her piano. She she had a piano all this time? Where is she hiding that? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, she's not from poverty completely. Like, they're doing okay. But she, yeah, she she sold her piano for 400 francs and she got the train to Paris. (gasps) On the way to the big smoke. It is big smoke. Paris at this time was a fucking scene, can we just say. (laughs) So, like, honestly, this is, I mean, this is fun de siècle Paris. It's gay Paris. It's the beginning of the Belle Epoque. And by the way, they called it Gay Paris, which was which I'm sorry, while Lauren, now you mean yeah. Gay Paris? Sorry, Gay Paris. Come yes. on, sorry. My, I'm trying not to be too like pretentious by saying Patty instead of Paris. But I don't it. think you can say the sentence Gay Paris. It just doesn't no, you sound can't. very good. You have to you, say the sentence Gay Paris. You're absolutely right. You do. You have to say Gay Paris because the the connotations are very different when you say yes, Gay Paris. The gay is not a reference to homosexuality. <laughs> homosexuality? The gay is not a reference, like, in the same way that we would mean it, like, in the LGBTQ queer life, but it is synonymous with the presence of courtesans. Mm. And that yes. is where we are going now. It so is. It's, I've got, oh, my God. So this world, should we take a moment to celebrate gay party? We are in a world where... And this is a very particular section of Paris, by the way, when we're talking about gay party, the Belle Epoque Paris, is this is where we've got this demi-monde where Mm -hmm. the wealthiest of men are flocking to this centre of pleasure. It was known as the the demi-monde because that means the half-world, which is literally like Mm. the meeting point between these rich and powerful men and these courtesans who who came from all walks of life, these cultured and intelligent women, their worlds mixed in these smoky cafes, in cabaret halls, and the restaurants around the Grand Boulevards, which was basically an area that stretched from Montmartre to the Place Madeleine, a place where advertisements for high fashion houses were embossed in gold. And in the restaurants, there's fine wine constantly flowing. The men who were known as boulevardiers indulged in drinking, cocaine, opium and gambling away from their nagging wives and bothersome children. And, of course, they kept women. They lavished with champagne, with jewellery and with designer clothes. And this is where our little 18-year-old Anne-Marie lands. Ugh. 
What a place to land. Have I set a scene for you? You have. Are we in our fantasy world now, everybody? (laughs) Well, we have been to this period of history and this place before. We have sort of dipped our toes a little bit into this decadent world of the Belle Epoque. We have. We were here with a few of our artists. Yeah. Agnes Goodsir, who joined the left bank of Paris when she left Australia and became an artist in this scene. We were here with Josephine Baker, who's going to come up actually in a little bit, a little bit later. But this is a very particular scene. So we're not, we've talked about the artists in this scene. We've talked about the twenties in this scene, but here we're specifically in the demi-monde, this world where basically courtesans were the biggest celebrities of the time Mm, mm -hmm. and where a woman could literally raise herself from poverty to become one of the wealthiest women in France due entirely to her intelligence, her charm, her, well, beauty, let's be honest, let's be frank about that. But beauty itself was not enough. Mm. You didn't make it in this world by just being pretty. You made it in this world by being calculating and a good bookkeeper and smart with your finances and excellent at networking and mingling and by giving off this effervescence, this joie de vivre Mm. that just kind of captured everybody around you. And the tabloids fucking loved these women and men loved them. And they really made something of themselves. Mm. And this is something that interests me. And we've talked about this before as well. But, you know, it is also that sort of that idea that being beautiful excludes all of those other qualities and Mm. properties in a person. It's kind of this idea, oh, well, you know, if you are beautiful, then that's wonderful. You'll you'll make it in this world. That's all it takes. But that's not all it takes. Um, yes. And we've, and we've seen this. Absolutely. In, we've seen this in so many of our women who have been those women who have been described as beautiful and seductive. And there's nothing wrong with being beautiful and seductive. And as we've said before, when you are beautiful and seductive, you use that. Like, yeah, go for it. When the world gives you nothing else, you use that as your agent of power. Absolutely. But... With a lot of women, the case is is much more complicated than that. These are yes. the kind of women who are, as you said, educated, intelligent. They know how to move in these circles. They know how to uh, seduce and impress, not just in that sort of purely physical sense. Yeah. And this is exactly what when, as she was then, Anne-Marie, because this is before she became Leanne de Pougy, this is exactly what she saw immediately when she arrived. So when she got to Paris, she basically lodged with a friend in the Rue de Chazelle, which was a street that was within this sort of district. And it was opposite a celebrated courtesan named Madame Balti, who was a 28-year-old, basically exactly what you've just said. She was this powerhouse of a woman. She was elegant, she was rich, and Anne-Marie would watch her out Mm. the window Mm. as she would emerge every evening into this beautiful carriage dressed in fine jewellery and high fashion and going off to live this life of going to the theatre and going to dinner and going to cafes. And this must have been totally intoxicating to her. So basically she watched this life of decadence and luxury and was like, oh, I want that. (laughs) I want in. Sounds great. It sounds very much like the start of Crimson Petal and the White, just so you know. 
but like, oh. like the middle section of Crimson yeah, Petal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that actually is a story that has a lot of parallels in the sense that that's a woman who raised herself. Well, okay, in Leander Puget's case, she's not necessarily raising herself from quite the same amount of poverty, but like, yeah, it has this wealthy benefactor who she's able to create a life for herself from. Mm. Which That's is a great all reason, need, for isn't it? Yeah. Yes. I made a mistake. I I'm engaged to a musician. <laughs> That's not the same thing. <laughs> uh, no, you don't, you, no. You don't want to marry the artist. You want to be the artist in the relationship. Yeah. Like it doesn't work the other way around. No, because then no one has any money. No one has. <laughs> So basically, she knew that she wanted to become one of these courtesans. She wanted to become what were known as the demi-mondaine, who were the women of this underworld. And they were basically courtesans and actresses. The two roles were very thinly <laughs> separated. Mm. This Pretty is why much it was not thing. very respectable to be an actress. Exactly. And someone like Sarah Bernhardt. Mm. is the type of woman who I think these days we think of. I assume that Sarah Bernhardt is a household name. I don't know if she is. Probably not, no. But she was one of the most famous actresses of this time and she was also in Paris and she's going to come up actually in a moment. But she's an actress and I think these days a lot of people who do know who she is think of her as being this sort of proto-actress superstar in the same way that you know Oscar-winning superstars would be to us. But actually the connotation of being an actress for her in her own time had so many connotations of this life, this demi-mondaine life, which if you're in it and if you're living it is fine and it's it, you can make a real reputation for yourself. But if you want to live on the respectable side of society, mm, mm, it's not great. Mm. But anyway, so what we kind of did touch on the fact that for these demi-mondaine, these these courtesans to be successful, they needed to not just be beautiful but have this real charm and intelligence and, and joy de vivre. And luckily, Leanne, well, our, uh, who would become Leanne de Prugier, she was no different. She was joyous. She was known for this kind of really particular glittering gaiety that just attracted all of these people around her. And social circles started to swarm around her. People started to want to be within her sphere of influence. And part of this, I think, is initially to do with her beauty. She famously had this sort of androgynous beauty, which fits the style that was emerging with the concept of the new woman. And the new woman Mm. being that woman who, in the late 19th century, was independent was kind of pushing back against a lot of these ideas of restrictive femininity that we've seen in the past and so she was slim she had long arms a long neck and in her diaries she describes herself as and I quote I use the merest touch of rouge it suits me rather small mouth well-shaped superb teeth my nose (laughs) they say it's a marvel of marvels pretty little ears like shells almost no eyebrows hence a little pencil line whenever i want eyes a green hazel prettily shaped not very large but my look is large hair thick and very fine incredibly fine a pretty shiny chestnut brown oh my goodness well no egotism there in her um description of herself but hey Good on her. (laughs) Got it flaunted. And this is something that I love about her because, like, as I said, when she got older, she started to become a little bit more religious or a lot more religious, as we shall see. 
And she wrote these notebooks, I think, as a kind of way of repenting. Mm, But (laughs) they're filled with all of this stuff that makes you feel like, I think this is all a show. That's a very interesting way of repenting. Exactly. I think (laughs) she's actually like super proud of who she was in the past and is just Uh like at the end of her life and wants to make good with God. Yeah. And she's like, but I'm going to, I am just going to genuinely document how fucking awesome I was because I was fabulous and I just need everybody to know how fucking fabulous I was but I'm also now I'm repenting and I'm a good Christian yay uh yeah so (laughs) we'll get to that though but she was also a really smart woman she was an excellent businesswoman so she knew how to manage her own funds she knew how to network how to socialize and navigate this particular demi-monde world successfully I guess you could go one of two ways as a woman in this world. You can be lavished with all of this jewellery and fine clothing and money and you can spend it all or you can be smart and you can save it because you know that your looks are going to fade. Yes. But that's so key, isn't it? You can't just sort of fritter away all of your money on beautiful jewellery and beautiful things. You have to realise that this isn't going to last forever and you're going to need to save for a rainy day. Because this is a business. Like Mm. these women Mm. are not just out partying all the time, even though they were. (laughs) Like this was their job. Like. And they're treating it like a job and they are being smart about it because, yeah, you have to be. And this is how they were making a living and they were making a very, very good living from it. And I think, okay, now I'm feeling like I need to go on my sex work is work rampage. Oh, please But at the end of the day, sex work is work. Sorry. But it's labor. <laughs> was that your That's, whole rampage? You know, I feel like that my, that my rant is actually very matter of fact. It's fucking (laughs) labor. It is work, right? And it is just as important, just as legitimate and just as worthy of our respect as any other form of work. And Mm, why mm. wouldn't the people engaged in this profession be just as fucking switched on and have just Mm, as much business mm -hmm. acumen as anybody else in the world? Because they do. It's the oldest work form in the world. I know that we say this, well, people say this all the time, and it's true. Mm. And it's not Mm. going anywhere. No, and as you say, I mean, like, it is essentially a small business. Thank you. Yes. So I don't know if anyone can tell how I feel about this, but uh, (laughs) decriminalize sex work. That's all i got to say about that. Anyway, let's get on with the story, shall we? (laughs) Speaking of being a good businesswoman, uh, she was so good at networking and and making such a good reputation for herself that she found herself as the protégé of the Countess Valtes de la Bigne. Now, this was a big fucking deal, okay? Let me tell you. Why can't you just be a pro... I want to be a protégé. Why can't you be a protégé? <laughs> the protégé of the most famous courtesan in Paris of her type. So basically... Yeah, fuck it, I'll take yeah, that. This is yes. the handing over yes. of the reins from the current queen of the courtesans to her protégé who will become the next queen of the courtesans basically is what's happening here. Those sound like some pretty good reins to take over. Well, yeah, I mean, Bignet was... She was the courtesan of her day, like... The reigning champion of courtesans. Can I ask you, what's the etymology of the word courtesan? Because when I typically think of the word courtesan, I actually typically think of courtesan in relation to... Well, because I guess the court is the, yeah, like the royal court, I guess. Mm. Yeah. I'm looking it up. 
as we speak because I didn't know. <laughs> but apparently it comes from the 1540s from the Middle French term courtesan from Italian cortigiana, which meant literally woman of the court. But it was yeah, in mock right. use. It was a euphemism for a prostitute. I see. Yes. Uh-huh. So, yes, I guess that's where we get the correlation between a courtesan being what we maybe think of as being a higher class, educated, cultured yeah. sex worker whose job is not just sex work but whose job is also entertaining. And, yeah, and who mixes with the highest yes. echelon of society. Yeah, so that makes sense, really. Yeah, so it yeah. does. Yeah, definitely. But that's why I was just wondering because at the moment I'm, I was thinking – well, I mean, there were, obviously she did run away with a marquee, didn't she? Yes, he was. He was a marquee. And that was before yeah. she came to Paris. Yeah, so she's already got her sights set high. Her, sa- her sights end up very high, <laughs> but not quite as high as her mentor, Valtesse de la Beignet. Let me tell you who she counted among her clientele. So uh, de la Beignet counted Napoleon III. Edward oh, VII. Right. She was a model to Edouard Manet oh, oh. and she inspired Emile Zola's Nana. Oh, fucking love that yes. book. She be- she's love yeah, it. so she is in a fictional sense and kind of problematic sense Nana. Basically. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. But really, so she is the example of a woman who actually really raised herself from abject poverty to becoming one of the wealthiest women in France. So she, here's something she did. She bankrupted the Prince de Sagan, who she had billed for her an opulent Hotel Particulier, which is a fancy townhouse in French. She also owned a famously extravagant varnished bronze bed. Oh, my God. Great. So she, she was like living the high life. She was out with princes, with kings, emperors. She had them all. And so Leanne de Cougy comes under the tutelage of this great courtesan. Can I just Mm. interrupt you there for a second? Some men just so desperate for a bang (laughs) that they will bankrupt themselves building you a townhouse (laughs) and a bronze bed. I mean, is that... Like really? I think I is yeah. It really I think that important. I think what the thing is is they're desperate to brag about that bang. Yeah, right. I think they're like. I don't think I would bankrupt myself to brag about anything. I don't know. This is the French aristocracy, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think they just, just like want to be able to seem... tell all their mates, like I fucked Voltaire Stella Beignet. I built yeah, her this townhouse. Yeah, but now you have no money. No, you don't have any money, but like, yeah, it just I think does not seem worth it. It just doesn't seem worth and it. And this to me. is where I think we often talk about, like, I guess opponents, not we, opponents to decriminalizing sex work talk about how, for example, one of their arguments is that women are exploited. Oh. But like, <laughs> I feel like you'll find in in this it, particular in so example many cases, Shh. I feel like we're yeah. being exploited. The people with the agency here, the people with the power, are the ones who are like, "Oh yeah, you want to see my leg? Build me a fucking townhouse." Who's yeah. getting yeah, exploited yeah. in that situation? Come on, fuck off. Yeah. Fuck off. Yeah. yeah. And of course, like, that's not to pretend that exploitation does not happen. Of course, in of, sex course. of course, of course, of course it does. But, I mean, this is a perfect example 
of a woman who's like, all right, you want this? Sure. I give no fucks. Well, actually, I give a lot of fucks. <laughs> and... <laughs> And that's why I'm living in this amazing townhouse yeah. with this amazing bed and I can buy whatever I exactly. want. Thank you. That's yeah. 100%. Yeah. Totally. And this is why I think these yeah. women are so amazing because they are so fucking smart to know that they can get all of this capital out of men for something that is really quite simple, you know? Mm. Bat mm. them a nice eye. Like, yes, okay, have sex with them. If you're consenting to that, great. But at the end of the day, who's who's really giving up more in that situation? Yes. Anyway, <laughs> there's very complicated politics here, but you know. Yes, of we're obviously and, I mean, we're, we're obviously, talking about it in a yeah. We're obviously simplifying a lot, but you know. Yeah, and in a very specific context. Yes. But anyway, in a context where we can definitely a hundred percent celebrate getting yourself a townhouse and a bronze yeah, bed. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> this does not escape our uh, Leander Pougie. So she learned a lot from Delabigny. They spent basically every evening together. They would apply their makeup together, get dressed together, go out on the town. Uh, Voltaire showed Leanne all of Paris's hotspots, including the importance. Get it? Hotspots. <laughs> Good one. Yeah. Uh, including the importance of Maxim's restaurant. Now, Maxim's mm. was the place to be seen in Paris. It was this beautiful Art Nouveau restaurant. It had these beautiful gilded mirrors. It still exists today, actually. You can still go there. Ah. And it saw the likes of Matihari, La Bellotero, wow. who was another very, very famous courtesan of this time and who became Pugie's chief rival. It also saw the likes ah. of the Prince of Wales, Marcel Proust, and, of course, Sarah Bernhardt, who we talked about earlier. So this is pretty much where the most fashionable, the highest class, you know, people of Paris hung mm. out. Mm-hmm. And they would go there yeah. all the time. And and they wouldn't just go there all the time. They would be the centre of attention when they got there, you know. Yes. Yeah. But Voltes, she was of a different time. She was quite a bit older than Pugy. She was at the end of her career nurturing this young, you know, blossoming, beautiful demi-mondaine. She was this kind of pre-Raphaelite beauty to Pugy's Belle Epoque. Uh-huh. And we know how I feel about pre-Raphaelite beauties. Yeah, you should look up some pictures of, of her because she is definitely of that kind of romantic Belle Epoque vision. But there aren't really as many photographs of her because she's sort of just pre that time. However, like I said, she mm. was painted by Manet and by others. So there's some really lovely, exquisite paintings of her, which you should find. And I guess we'll probably post to Instagram because we can. I feel like we should. Yes. yes. There's going to be so many Instagram posts associated with this story, honestly. Excellent. So being of a slightly different time, Voltes was not just like, okay, here's how we go out and procure clients. Here's how we keep our finances in check. Here's a few boudoir tricks. But she also encouraged Pugy to spend more time cultivating her intellectual pursuits. Um, she really wanted her to read classical texts, to read poetry, to visit art galleries. And look, this is all very important to being a courtesan. Mm. But our Pugy, she thought this was all a little bit dull. She was... Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. If someone said to me, right, your task 
if you choose to accept it, is to read these books, read these poems and go to these art galleries. <laughs> I'd be like, fuck okay. you. <laughs> well, we yes, would. I will do we that. We would, Alicia, especially if somebody in Paris is telling us to do this. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I would have no drama. That would not be boring to me at all. But pushy Alicia, she she wanted to party, oh, you know. Oh well, well you know what? She's a lot younger than me. Well, so. she was about like God this is it. like between the ages of like eighteen and twenty, and it's also Belle Epoque Paris, and it's not surprising why she wanted to party. If we may, let's have a look in the life, a day in the life of a Parisian courtesan. Can yes. we? Yes, please. We shall. I've look. We're going to. I've written notes about this. I couldn't help myself. Okay, so let's say you're a demi-mondaine in Paris at the beginning of the Belle Epoque. You rise at midday in a beautiful apartment or townhouse built for you by Mm -hmm. your wealthy protector, quote-unquote. Yes, with my bronze Mm -hmm. bed. You pop down Mm. to your favourite cafe for lunch with a friend or a Mm. lover. Everybody knows you. You come here every day. The staff, they know you. You probably even come in through the back door. You're so well known here. They know your favourite order. You have a lazy lunch. Mm -hmm. Then you go for a stroll around the gardens or along the boulevard. You admire the fashions, the fabrics and in the beautiful gold-gilded shop windows and by then mm. it's afternoon, it's time for a break, so you stop by another You've favorite had a busy cafe. Day. Yep. Busy yeah. yeah. It's time for a coffee, for a glass of wine. So you go to another cafe where you know everybody, all your friends are gonna be there because this is where the artists hang out, where the writers hang out, where potential new clientele hang out. Mm. In the evening, you head home for a bit because you've got to dress into something a little bit oh, more. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, a bit fancy, yep. a bit elegant. Yep. You need to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you take your coach to meet your paramour for dinner at one of the many restaurants along the boulevard. And after yes. several courses, which could be like literally like half a dozen, if not a dozen courses of fine food, you might mm. pop into a private room for a quick little bit with your man oh, yes. for a quote. Another course. (laughs) Before heading back out into the world at midnight to catch a show, just to catch a lazy show at midnight. Lazy midnight show. There's lots to choose from. You've got the opera, the theatre, a variety show, a circus, or, of course, you could head out to the Moulin Rouge or the Folie Bergère where you could indulge in more food and wine and watch the revelries. And then, because that's not enough yet, it's not enough, after the show, you'll probably go and see out the rest of the night at another cafe. Oh, God's sake. I know. Well, Paris was basically an all-night party every yeah. night. Well, this is just the, you know, the average night in Adelaide in, in February. February. <laughs> well, yeah, this is the closest that we get. Uh, it's the closest we get is during the Adelaide Fringe, which, if you don't know, is the second biggest festival in, in the world. It's the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere. But it's still certainly not quite Bella Well, you're not going to go for a say. stroll along the on, along the Seine after you watch. Well, you, you could go for a stroll along the Torrens. <laughs> the famously the romantic Torrens. Uh, you can, you can pull a, a bike out of the Torrens. <laughs> one of those. A scooter. You could pull, yeah, one of those stupid scooters, yep. some helmets. You could take a ride on the Popeye. <laughs> It's just the same. It's exactly the same. Get a bag of donuts at 2 a.m. <laughs> for, for $6. Oh, 
It's great. Oh my god! You know what? Adelaide and Paris, Bella Park, Paris—they're so similar. <laughs> they have so many similarities. Yeah, and I mean, this is this is so similar to our lives as well, isn't yeah. it? You know, getting up at twelve—that's right. Having a stroll. That's why this whole kind of social isolating thing is so difficult because <laughs> I've just got so many cafes to go to. So many paramours to I see. I know. So many strolls along the river. So many operas. Gosh, I did go to the opera. The actually, other day, I did want. Honest. I did want to go to the opera in the near future. Actually, yeah, I went the other day but. and it, I, I didn't love it. It wasn't my favorite opera. Anyway, but Pucci took Valtessa's advice well. They were seen in very fashionable locations together at the races, at the opera. She would go to Nice for the weekend, and of course, they were very regularly seen at Maxim's. But more than that, Voltes really taught her some very serious fundamentals about this life as a courtesan. She taught her to take mm. herself seriously and to expect to be taken seriously by others, that she should never mm. allow herself to be hustled or duped or to let a man get away with giving her anything less than she was worth. The Voltes was mm-hmm. famous for taking men to court for such insults. Excellent. Mm-hmm. And she won most of the time. And the Voltes also suggested that Puget develop a personal style, a trademark. And so Leander Puget began to wear a single pearl earring in her ear. And she was. Oh my God! And so she became known as another title, the Lady with the Pearl, which sounds a bit like a euphemism. It does. Also a bit like a painting. Famous painting, maybe? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And so through this association with Valtes and through putting such wisdom into practice, of course, Puget became quite well known. So well known that she was invited to headline at the Folie Bergère, the cabaret music hall on oh. Rue Richer. This was the uh, another. I keep talking about there being so many centres of pleasure in Belle Epoque, Paris. And this is <laughs> another one of them. It was originally built as an opera house, which opened in May 1869, and it became the Folie Bergère on the 13th of September, which is my birthday, 1869. The review... Not in 1869, no, no your birthday. that's quite no. a long, a good 118 years before my birthday. Yes. Uh, the reviews were these, like, outstanding spectacles with glittering costumes and dance, extravagant sets and effects, and this is, by the way, where our favourite... Josephina Baker would rise to fame with her banana skirt in the 1920s. Fabulous. Fabulous. But unlike Josephine Baker, oh, there's always a <laughs> It seems that Leanne de Pogie was not the world's greatest actress, oh, at no. least not according to one Sarah Bernhardt, who was oh. hired to attempt to teach Pogie to act. Things went so badly that Bernhard advised Pugie that when she was on stage, it would be best to, quote, keep her pretty mouth shut. Oh. Harsh burns. Yeah. Harsh burn. Harsh burn. <laughs> Nevertheless, Pugie was very popular, of course, because I guess in Paris, in the Belle Epoque, you don't have to be that talented. You just have to be beautiful and charming. And full of so she just kept acting, despite the fact that she sucked. Well, she had like minor roles in the Folie Bergère, and they were just small parts, and it didn't last a great amount of time. But it lasted for long enough that in the 1890s, an English performer, Herbert Charles Pollitt, used her as his inspiration for his drag name, Diane de Rougie. Ah, interesting. 
Yeah, so she'd made her mark on the cultural scene. I feel like if a drag queen names herself like after you or in reference to you, you like you've made it as a cultural icon. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah, you've definitely yeah, you've definitely made your mark. So it is the 1890s now. We've skipped ahead in time a little bit. And Leanne de Pugy is a veritable celebrity. And this is where we're going to get to some of her great conquests. So she was so famous by this time that she was pursued by the likes of Leopold II of Belgium, who is one of the worst people to have ever existed, by the way. (laughs) Like, do you know anything about (laughs) Leopold of Belgium? I don't think so, no. So he was responsible for a bunch of very atrocious things that happened in Africa. I won't go into detail about them because they're awful, but like he's not a great person to be associated with. But he pursued her. I don't know if they actually had a relationship. But this is where she also developed a rivalry with La Bella Terra, who I I mentioned before, who was another very famous courtesan of the time. Mm -hmm. And she, the La Bella Terra, by the way, was pursued by also Leopold II of Belgium, along with Kaiser Wilhelm II, Prince (gasps) Albert I of Monaco, King Edward VII, multiple kings of Serbia, multiple kings of Spain, the Russian Grand Dukes, Peter and Nicholas, and... The Duke of Westminster. Bloody hell. So I guess what you were saying before about the fact that she just becomes like a conquest that you need to tick off in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because how can this many people be like clamouring? Well, this is exactly it. I think it's the status of celebrity. Yeah. It's it's the I have been with La Bella Terra. Have you? Like she is the most glamorous, the most amazing, the biggest, most famous courtesan of our time. Yeah. Unless you ask Leander Pugy who would say, no, she is not. I am. (laughs) But you want one of them, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, I think it's just a reputation thing, I guess. But she was also very smart and also La Bella Terra is a, another woman who raised herself from this terribly rough childhood. And look, I don't know if I should even tell this part of the story because I don't like sharing these details, but her rough childhood included her rape at the age of 10. Oh, dear God. So a lot of these women came from really abject circumstances, you mm. know, like they really climbed through the ranks to get themselves to these positions of power. Like Mm. how much power do you wield when you've got fucking Leopold II of Belgium pursuing you, honestly? Like because that Mm. man didn't give a fuck. Mm. He conquered the fucking Congo. Like he didn't care about anybody. But if he's pursuing you and and lavishing you with gifts and doing what you want, like that's some power, you Mm. know? Mm. And apparently the La Bella Terra was so beautiful and amazing and charming that men reportedly committed suicide after their love affairs ended. And now I oh don't know if God. that's true. These are just the kinds of rumours that kind of circulated around her. I hope it's not true, by the way. God, full on. Yeah. But both Leander Pugy and La Bella Terra moved in the same circles and they were both often found at Maxim's. They were flirting and dancing and having a wonderful time. But while La Bella Terra had a number of very wealthy and famous clients, as we have kind of talked about, it was Pugy who was the wiser bookkeeper and investor. So while her admirers were not quite as lofty, she didn't have 
quite the same sort of retinue of of kings and princes and such. Mm. She was much better at managing the income that they allowed her. Mm -hmm. And another reason that they're both kind of compared is that they both were immortalized on postcards. Ah, yes. Okay. Yeah. Go on. So this is a really popular thing to do at the time. So Mm. women would license their images to postcard companies and they made quite a sizable income from it. And you can find a lot of these postcards online today. Like they were kind of like naughty postcards. They're not like pornographic. Yeah, yeah. Some of them are more risque than others, but most of Leander Pugis are actually just very normal portraits of her. Like they're just her looking quite lovely and beautiful. Uh, yeah, those those postcards were incredibly collectible and um, they still are very collectible. And mm. I feel like we might have touched on them in a previous episode as well, maybe. Uh, maybe not. But, yes, Ooh, they definitely I don't were know. <laughs> one of those sorts of things that you, you can still find in antique stores and yeah. this is now. They, they're still, you know, very collectible items. Yeah, yeah. And they made a good income. Like they were a very reliable way to kind of get some extra cash on the side, I guess, when things are quiet. But one important way that Bougie and La Bella Terre differed was that Leanne de Bougie was bisexual. Oh. Now, this wasn't widely known about her until around this time when she had an affair with the American writer Natalie Clifford Barney. Oh, I know Natalie Clifford Barney. Well, you so you should. She yes. was an expat. Yes. She held a salon in Rue de Jacob on the left bank. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, she, she lived yeah. right through to the 70s or something. Mm. Did Yeah, Natalie. actually. A lot of these women who I'm talking about today live to be actually really old and like well into the second half of the 20th century. Mm, yeah. And Natalie Clifford Barney is one of those ones where I think there are a lot of postcards of her as well. Weren't yeah, I'm not sure actually. Or... There's definitely, I mean, she she wrote a lot. There's a lot of her work around. Yes, yeah, because she wrote plays as well as poems. Yeah, yeah, poetry, plays, yeah. She's been on my list for a while. Oh, really? Yeah. There you go. Yeah, Maybe yeah. we can do a, a crossover at some point. Yeah, excellent. But, All right, carry she, on. She also created a women's academy in response to the all-male French academy. So she was like a very kind of an activist writer, openly lesbian. She wrote poetry, love poetry, under her own name, which was really quite kind of controversial and brave of the time, especially because she was American. And Americans mm, attend, mm-hmm. yeah, more conservative upbringing. Yeah. But yeah. she met Pugie apparently at a dance hall and famously, or maybe legendarily, after the performance, Barney came to Pugie's house dressed as a page and she <sighs> announced herself as the page of love sent by Sappho. Aye. But little did Barney know, but Pugie and Voltes knew that Barney were coming and apparently laid a trick for her. So they had the maid lead Barney into a dimly lit room where a figure was reclining on a chaise lounge. And as she got closer, she knelt down to kiss this figure and then she flew back because it was not Pugie, but Voltes, the elderly Voltes <laughs> on the lounge. And then Pugie, unable to kind of contain herself, came out from behind a curtain dressed in a diaphanous gown and held out her hands to her. So it seems like they were both pretty... Pretty keen. Extra? Yeah. <laughs> extra. 
and like maybe suited one another in that way. But apparently they were both very charming and clever, of course. And I think they just really fell for each other. Like they were very good match. And they shared love letters. And though their actual romantic relationship lasted only a year, the two felt very deeply for one another for many, many years of their life. Eventually, though, I guess it petered out. In my blue notebooks, Pujit describes how one day in 1934, the two ran into each other in Toulon but didn't even acknowledge one another. But that was like 1934, so it had been a while. Yeah. I guess these things eventually die down. Sad. Sad. But... The affair did inspire Pujit to write her bestseller, Idil Safik. Oh, hello. Again, Safik. Uh-huh. Idil Safik, mm-hmm. a thinly veiled fictional account of their relationship. And Barney also chronicled the affair in Women Lovers. So the two of them wrote about these relationships and published them. And, and actually, Idil Safik was not Pujit's only book. She wrote other novels, including its English name is The Elusive One in 1898 and uh, Muriel or The Lesser Portion in 1899. Both the of these Lesser were, Portion. Th- yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but both of these were courtesan novels. This was like a subgenre of novels that became quite popular at the time. And I think Pouchy quite deliberately aimed to challenge Alexandre Dumas' portrayal of Marguerite in La Dame aux Camélias, which came out in 1848, which Pouchy believed promoted unrealistic and harmful stereotypes of courtesans. Ah, okay. Interesting. And in these later books in particular, Pouchy offered a depiction of sex workers that I guess wasn't really being portrayed at the time. So she wrote... Quite intertextually to Zola's Nora, Mm. and she depicted some of the, I guess, darker or harsher realities of sex work, such as like harassment and humiliation and violence. And something that is controversial at the time, I think for us probably surprisingly controversial, is that she gave her protagonists a happy ending. Ah, you can't do that. No, sex workers are not allowed to have happy endings. No, they have to die. Not. They have to be examples to be, you know, held to society. So to give a courtesan character a happy ending is actually really subversive in this time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But along with her writing career, because of her relationship with Barney, she also developed a small clientele of wealthy women. Like she had a devoted lesbian clientele, which was another thing that kind of separated her, I suppose, from some of the other, some of her peers, I suppose. Mm. But having said that, lesbianism in Belle Epoque Paris was, and we've talked about this before in previous episodes, for example, especially, I guess, in Agnes Goodser. Oh, yeah. Was, yeah. It wasn't super rare. Like, no, not, not by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I guess I, would, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that Paris was the centre of lesbianism in the kind of turn of the century. I believe we've previously referred to it as the lesbian mecca. Yes, we did, didn't we? We did say that. exactly the term that we used. Let's let's use that term again. It was lesbian (laughs) mecca. And we had circles of women. If you haven't listened to our Agnes Goodser episode, we had there were circles of women who were very open about their sexuality and used to hang out with each other all the time. So we had people like Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas, who are the most famous lesbians of Paris or maybe Mm. of any lesbians ever, to Agnes Goodser and her lover Cherry. 
But at the time, of course, it wasn't known as lesbianism. It was known as Safism. And just for some context, in case we have forgotten, because Agnes Goodsir was a while ago, it was a changing attitude and it was quite open within particular circles in Paris. But at the same time, of course, there were a lot of things on the other side, as there always are critiques and criticisms and outright uh, hate and prejudice. Well, I mean, of course, obviously, I mean, Safism is not going to be popular with everyone. No. Well, and again, because it was a really changing time and it did mean that there was an interest in understanding sexuality and a sociological study by this guy called Coffignon became quite influential in 1889. But basically in it, he criticized sapphists and labeled them as corrupt and evil, which is unsurprising. feel like corrupt and evil is, you know, they're terms that don't belong in a study, you know? Like a real no, it doesn't seem very objective, does no. it? It's not like a like, genuine study shouldn't probably yeah, shouldn't be called. That's practical. not empirical, is it? <laughs> no. No. no, no. But there were other studies, similar kinds of studies, and some of them blamed the emergence of the new woman, which is as we kind of talked about before, this emergence of the woman who was coming into new rights, not just legally. So, yes, there was the right to divorce, to own property, open a bank account in your own name. Can you imagine? But we also have these other little things that are happening, like the changes in fashion Mm. becoming more streamlined. Women can move physically easier. There's also the bicycle. And like, I don't want to underplay this, but like the bicycle was a fucking revolution for women's rights. Yeah. Because suddenly women had access to this mode of transport that was really allowed them to be independent. Mm. And some blamed this decadent society that we have been talking about. And it is decadent and it is debaucherous and all that sort of stuff that they said that sapphism was the fault of provocative literature and art and this terrible cafe culture that everybody loves so much. And others saw it as emblematic of women's natural mental latency and device. (laughs) But whatever way you put it, all critics agreed that lesbianism was très dangereux. Oh, very dangerous. Let's go with very yes. dangerous as the interpretation. Oui, oui. oui. Yeah. Now, in France specifically, there was actually no law that forbid lesbianism, unlike for gay men where they had mm. sodomy, sodomy mm. laws. Pretty much if women were getting it on in private, they could love each other as hard as they wanted to. And... Here's another cool fact. There were lesbian bars in Paris around this time. Ooh. Have we been into those before in our stories? I can't even I remember. I don't think so. So there was one which was called Le Hanneton in Rue Pigalle, and it's described in this fabulous book that I read as research for this episode called The Mistress of Paris that describes it thus. In the evening, it was rare to see a man at all. Women of different classes drew close around tables, their bodies enlaced as they exchanged cigarettes, sweets and kisses. That's the end of the quote. <laughs> there was also a place called uh, Le Rat Mort, which means the dead rat, <laughs> which was named after a rat that was killed when it disturbed a particular couple's intimacy. <laughs> Great. Love it. So th- There's that. Okay. I want to just highlight that because I think it's important to understand the culture of what is happening around this time Mm. because another big cultural trend was the rise of five o'clocks. Do you want to have a guess at what five o'clocks are? um, People who finish work at five o'clock? Oh, gosh. I wish. No. (laughs) 
but it's better known to us in the in the anglosphere as afternoon to you. Oh, right. Tier? Okay. Tier. Afternoon tea is basically what it is. There was this weird Anglophone craze that swept through France and Europe in the kind of 1880s and 90s for some reason, uh, which brought with it the ritual of afternoon tea, complete with sandwiches and pastries. But really, it was an excuse for women to get together, wear fashionable clothes, oh, yes. chat about their lives, yep. and enjoy each other's company. Yeah. We have definitely talked about that before. Yeah. So this is something that Valtesse de Lavigne Pouget's mentor she was really into and really famous for. So she hosted these all-female five o'clocks and as everything that she did, they were the place to be seen. If you got an invite to one of Valtesse de Labigny's afternoon teas, you were like set in the social scene of Paris. And of course, Pougie was a regular. Now at these teas, they discussed men and sex. <gasps> All the sorts of things that women talk about when the boys aren't around. That's right. But they also posed big questions to each other about how women's roles in society were changing, how society itself was changing. And unsurprisingly, some saw these little female gatherings as a dangerous new activity. Mm, Yes. A breeding ground for thought. That's right, exactly. A breeding ground for thought. Like, oh my God, what's going to happen when all these women get together? But also, here's a side note, doctors were legitimately concerned about what was going to happen to women's digestion when they started having afternoon tea. <laughs> Terrific. They were concerned. That's, like, yeah, oh no, well, an I mean, extra meal important. between lunch and dinner? Mm. Gosh, women's bodies can't handle such things. <laughs> Anyway, but yeah, basically they they were afraid that women would corrupt each other and become even more morally depraved. And, well, look. Maybe there was something to it? There might have been. Let, <laughs> look, let's just say that it wasn't super uncommon for lesbian affairs to begin at these little gatherings. So Voltaire Celebigny did have a number of affairs with women and they were mostly not very serious. She was very low-key about things. Like she didn't really want the press to know that she was bisexual, not so much because she was afraid of like reputational damage or or shame or anything like that, but really because she kind of wanted to maintain an aura of mystery. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. But she kept a very close circle of female friendships, very intimate friendships, whether or not they were sexual. But amongst all of her girlfriends, it was known that her favourite was, of course, Leanne de la Bigne. Mm -hmm. We don't actually know for sure whether or not the two were true lovers because the Valtes was far more guarded about this kind of thing. But they were the, like closest of confidants. And she, like, but Voltes wouldn't share anything with anyone. She didn't even share her deepest of intimacies with Puji. She actually really decried love in all of its in all of its forms. She thought that it got in the way of things. She was mm. a practical old school. I like it. Yeah. But while she thought the odd dalliance with women was fine and a lot of fun, she did think it was a real career risk to actually have a relationship with one. Mm-hmm. And so she kind of criticised Puji for her relationship with Barney and her relationship with other women. But regardless of these, they were deeply close and I think a lot of people do suspect that they might have had a relationship. They holidayed together in Monte Carlo and Nice and when they were at home, they would take breakfast together in Voltaire's great bronze bed 
where they would like gossip or chat about the play that they'd seen together the previous evening. That just sounds like generalised fun though. Yeah, I think so. And and this is another one of those things that we have, and we have definitely talked about this before, where there's this line between female friendship and lesbianism. Yeah. And it's that question of is the friendship hiding a genuine lesbian relationship or is it a genuine friendship that we want to make, well, particularly others objectifying this friendship want to make sexy? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And it's a question that we just don't really have an answer for, I think. Yeah, yeah. That is a question that plays into a lot of the the stories, a lot of the historical mm. stories we have of women where we don't, end up with their actual, their voice telling us. Yeah. Because as you mentioned before, I mean, we do have Bougie's words. We have her, her memoir or her autobiography essentially. Mm. But obviously she doesn't address this particular mm. part of, of her life. Yeah. To be perfectly honest, I wasn't able to get a full copy of the Blue Notebook so I haven't been able to read it in full, but from uh, what I can understand mm-hmm. from other sources that refer to it, it seems like she doesn't really address it directly. Right, yeah. Because mm-hmm. some some other scholars I've read said, yes, they did have an affair, others are a little bit more on the fence about it, so I'm not really sure, but mm. I could be wrong. Somebody who has access to the Blue Notebooks might be able to provide information that will clarify this point i don't know Mm -hmm. anyway i'm going to skip ahead to the 1910s now because time marches on and as i said puji she knew she couldn't rely on her looks forever and as the golden 1890s gave way to the 1900s and then came the 1910s and these were turbulent years puji was 40 now she was getting on a bit Hey, well, I mean, if the Voltas is anyone to go by, she still had a few very good years left in her yet. Good, because I, I haven't even become a courtesan yet. Give me, give me a chance. <laughs> You've still got many, many good courtesan years ahead of you, Alicia. <laughs> Thanks. I promise. Cheers. But she met Prince George Gika. Okay. Whoever he is. Yeah. He was actually much younger than her. Was he actually a prince? Yes, he was the prince of Moldavia. That's where the Geeka family are from. Okay. He was quite a bit younger than her, but the two fell in love. And I guess this is when she decided that, yeah, okay, maybe I need to call it. Maybe it's not going to get better than a prince. I should like, just like, you know. Settle. uh, What's the expression I want? Settle. No, I was going to say like cash my chips in or something. (laughs) A little bit more positive than settle. Still, I think settling for a prince is a pretty good settle. It's not really settling at all, is it? No. Like he's a prince. I wouldn't say so. It's quite. And they loved each other. It was great. She found love. She was happy. Good. Good. And the two got married on the 8th of June, 1910. Now, she wanted to marry him in the church because she's starting to enter into this part of her life where she's getting a little bit more religious and starting to want to repent for her sins. Ah. But she was divorced, remember, which was very scandalous in the Catholic Church. So they had to have a civil ceremony. But to get off on the right foot, nonetheless, the day before her wedding, she went to church and took confession. And when the priest asked her what she needed to be absolved for, for, (laughs) she said everything except for murder and robbery. (laughs) (laughs) so it was a happier much happier marriage than her first though they had their share of ups and downs and 
The downs in the first part of their marriage were not actually because of the marriage itself, but because there was quite a few personal losses in her life. And the first of these was on July 1910. Her dearest Voltaire, Stella Bignet, passed away. Mm. And what was in a very, like we talk, I talked about the fact that Voltaire was perhaps, oh no, I didn't say Voltaire was very extra, but I'm going to apply yes, that to oh. Voltaire as well. I said someone was extra, but oh, yeah. the Voltaire was also very extra. She actually wrote her own death cards. So, oh, sweet. <laughs> so you know how like back in this day and age when, <laughs> when someone would pass, the close family and friends would be sent a notification of the death, a little death card. Normally, though, this would be written by the family. But upon being told by her doctor that she was not long for this world, Voltes personally wrote the notice of her own death. That's fantastic. That she sent to her closest and dearest friends. And so Pougie opened this card and, and immediately she thought it must have been a joke. She was just like, what the fuck, Voltes? Like, this isn't funny. Like, this is such a morbid joke. It's so you. Uh, but it was true. And, and once she realized it was true, she was inconsolable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this woman is basically her mother. It's her mm. mother, it's her best friend, her mentor, the woman who gave her everything that she had in this life, really, mm. like who allowed her to enter in this world so spectacularly. And then she was gone. Her second great loss around the same time came in 1914 when her son, remember she had a son? Oh, Mark. Yeah, Mark. he's been off the scene for a while. Yeah, so I think the two of them did have a distant relationship in life, but he was killed in action. He was a pilot in oh. for the he was a French pilot and of course this is the Great War and he was mm. he was killed in action and and this was an enormous blow for her. And though they were never close, she was like truly devastated by his death and she wrote in her diary. And this is really sad. I did not love my son enough when he was alive. I was all woman, woman, not mother. My love was not able, didn't really want to make a place for itself in his gloriously beautiful, excessively independent life. Oh, how I have regretted it, how I have wept and been punished. And that's really, it is. And his death, I think, is what triggered this period of really deep reflection mm. in her life that caused her to move towards the church because I think this was the kind of catalyst moment that caused her to think about who she was and, and what she had done in the past and maybe what she should have done better. And I think one of the things that she wishes that she had done better was to be a better mother. Yeah. And she couldn't, yeah, she couldn't ever absolve herself of that. And so she dedicated herself basically to good works after this. So uh, she and George were out one day. Oh, by the way, George left her for a younger woman in 1926 Aww. and then they got back together again. Oh. But they kept having affairs with younger women. Both of them kept having <laughs> affairs with younger women. I only note that for the sake of chronology because I want to skip to 1928 and I'm still in this theme of absolution. So let's, okay, so they've, they've broken up, they're back together. One day in 1928, she and George were out driving in Savoy when they came across a convent, this ruinous convent, uh, not completely ruinous, but decrepit a little bit, I guess. Mm. And they didn't know what it was or, or who lived there, so they went to find out. And what they found there both kind of touched and horrified her because it was the Asylum of St. Agnes, a home for children with all kinds of disabilities. And now 
let's remember that this is 1928 mm. and so mm. the descriptions are not not anything that I would feel yes. comfortable repeating in this yes, I could podcast. Imagine. Nevertheless, I think we can say that they were children in a very destitute position. They mm. had multiple kinds of physical and mental disabilities and they were being cared for by the nuns and the nuns, to, I think, Puji does give them a lot of credit for kind of doing as best as they could. It wasn't like the nuns were, you know, there's a particular kind of stereotypical nun in this situation who's quite hard-lined and, you know, cruel. cruel. But in Mm. this sense, I think she's saying these nuns are giving them everything they can, but they just didn't have much to give. Mm. And so she dedicated herself to helping them and she became a disability advocate She dedicated herself to the service of the disabled, to caring for and educating physically and mentally handicapped children. But it also, the way that she writes about it makes it, I don't know, it's kind of troubling in the sense that, so in in the preface to the Blue Notebooks, the writer describes that she saw in these children her own degradation and wanted to make up for it, which... Mm, I can understand like interesting way of putting that yeah exactly because there's so much and I think this very much speaks to the particular time that we're talking about here because that of course there's so many inferences of ableism and sex shaming kind of implicit in something like that and I don't know if that's how Puji truly felt like this uh, I can't remember who the writer of the preface is, but that certainly seems to be how this writer felt. Mm. But as I've read others who suggest that her turn in this way and writing the diaries and, and she did have this genuine desire to do good. I do believe that. But the way that she writes about it and the way she kind of makes herself sound quite saintly is is uh, maybe a way of kind yeah, of right. making up with God right in the last minute because she also – so after the death of her husband, George, she entered the order of St. Dominic as a tertiary lay sister. So she took back her name of Anne-Marie. She became Sister Anne-Marie okay. and devoted herself to the life of a nun. And she carried out her nunly duties. She recited the daily office, the rosary, the gospel. She was very well liked by all the other nuns. She was liked by the mother superior. Yeah, there's some say that she seemed to genuinely want to make up for this life of sin and absolve herself before death by entering the church, Mm. not just out of a fear of hell or something, but because she genuinely wanted to because it was really important to her because she'd rediscovered her faith. But others say that this might have been, yeah, like a way of charming her way into heaven because she was very good at that, like, you know. And because, of course, her mother had predicted it as well. Yes, it's so true. Exactly. Her mother predicted that she would have this saintly afterlife. And so I don't really know how to feel about that because her diaries could be this coded sort of way of being like, hey, here's all the cool scandalous things that I did, but I'm writing it through this veil of my self-awareness of my... Yeah, my repentance for it. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't really have an answer to that, but I think it's a really interesting thing to think about. And obviously we can't say because we're not her and we don't know. But Mm. I I don't think anyone should say one way or the other what she was doing. But I think it's really interesting to consider both options. Yeah. Mm. And so then – and so she lives out her life here? Yeah, yeah, she did. So – 
She died finally on the 26th of December in 1950. So she lived to the ripe age of 81. She had a good, like, this is what I said, like these women had a really good run. They lived well into the mid 1900s. Um, she died in Lausanne in Switzerland and was buried in the enclosure of the Sisters of the St. Agnes Asylum. And yeah, her blue notebook, my blue notebooks is what the book is called. They were published posthumously. And you can, I think you can find them if you're lucky, like they exist. I couldn't get my hands on a copy. I did get my hands on a copy of a bunch of other books that are relevant, but I couldn't get that one. If anyone does, I'd be really interested to hear about it. But that's, I think, how we know a lot about her life. And of course, the ideal Safik, her mm. thinly veiled lesbian memoir, uh, it's, fiction. So it's, I, sorry, I should say. It's so interesting, isn't it, to think, you know, she died in 1950 and just how much of the world, like how many changes in the world happened between when she was born and when she died? Just how much Absolutely. the world shifted and changed. Yeah. Like what what a crazy time to live through because she mm. was born, when did we say she was born? 1869. 1869. Yeah, yeah. I know. Oh, Imagine she fuck. saw... The turn of the century, two world wars, the invention of electricity, yeah. the radio, television. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's unthinkable what yeah. she saw in her lifetime. Yeah. It's so, so bizarre. And she it? partied with some of the 20th century's greatest figures in that time as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, what an absolutely fascinating character and a fascinating period of history yeah. that I'm sure we'll go back to again. Of course we will because it's <laughs> Bella Poc Paris and especially at times like these, you need some, like we said at the top of the show, you need some escapism and this felt like really lovely escapism for me. This was fun to research. I had a great time. I read yeah. a bunch of books that are great and I recommend. I'll quickly do a shout out. The Mistress of Paris by Catherine Hewitt, which is actually about the Voltaire de la Bigne. So you if anyone what? would like to read more about her life, I reckon get on my it. mum has that book. I reckon my mum has recommended that book to me before, which is sounds funny. That's cool. It? But mum yeah. my mum does love some historical fiction and biography. So Ooh, this is a biography. Yeah. She's definitely got it. You should, yeah, check it out. There's not actually a biography of Leander Puggy herself. You have to kind of get my blue notebooks the memoir version of it. But I also read The Book of Courtesans by Susan Griffin, which is also great, and Seductresses by Betsy Prillow. So there's some real good reading in there if anyone is interested in following up more on not just Leander Puggy or the Voltaire de la Bigne or La Belle Otero, but any number of courtesans throughout history because they are bloody fascinating women, powerful, powerful women who I think really take agency on their own lives and flip the narrative. Like this is what courtesans mm. do. They totally mm. flip that understanding of women as being subjugated they take total control of their own sexuality, mm. over their own beauty, and they are witty and intelligent and clever. And yeah, they're fucking masterful. Yeah. So hats off to courtesans. Wonderful. And sex workers all over the world. Yep, absolutely. I think that's the take home for today's episode. Yeah. And thank you for taking us to such a, yeah, just such a cool period of history. Really, yeah. I hope it was a f- some fun fun escapism for everybody yeah. in these dark times that we live in 
Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and so thank you so very much for taking us there, Lauren. And I think that after this episode, we can all dream of decadence and indulgence <laughs> and mm. dressing in our finery and chuffing off to, Going the, to, the, to the opera. When you're um, watching your opera virtually on your computer from self-isolation, you can imagine <laughs> that you're in Bella Bog Paris. <laughs> but we hope, we hope you've enjoyed it. And, of course, we'll be back in another fortnight with, um, yes. well, who can say? I mean, I should be able to say because it will be my turn. But you know what? Yeah. Who can say? Um, <laughs> That's okay. We'll, we'll find out soon. Yes, we will. We'll find, we'll find out soon. Yeah. In the meantime, of course, um, we hope that you are taking good care of yourself wherever you are in the world yep and that you remember that if you want to catch more deviant women content you can find us on patreon for as little as two dollars a month and i know this is really cheeky to say but you know it's a good time to support freelance artists and makers of many different types of art not just podcasters such as us so if you can spare a dime i know not many people can at the moment because fucking the world is on fire but like You know, it is a good time to support artists on Patreon just generally because so many of them are out of work. So Mm. we're on Patreon, but so are a bunch of other people that you should check out. So I want to plug everybody on Patreon. Go support (laughs) your favorite artists on Patreon. Every single last one of them. All of them, if you can. Of Of course, many of you can. And that's fine too. (laughs) We understand. We respect you. We love you anyway. We do. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And, of course, if you wanted to spend a little bit of time doing some online shopping because it makes you feel better (laughs) in these dark times, then feel free. You can find T-shirts and pins for Deviant Women on our Etsy store. And if you can't support us monetarily, that's fine. We get it, dudes. But you can write us a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. We would love you forever. And, of course, as always, our big thank yous to India Hui for the music. Sound guy Brendo. My fiancé. Fiancé. Fiancé Brendo the sound guy. And Dan, our executive producer. Yeah. And that's all from us this week. We will see you from self-isolation next fortnight (laughs) as always. Thanks, guys. Stay safe. Keep looking up. Things are going to be okay. (laughs) And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.